Man, thank you, Dean, for that, that moment and the updates. And I, I love the passion of, of just how Christ can really reach the world. And again, I reiterate that it's, it's nobody here. Right? It's, it's not us. This is, this is Christ's church, and, and he has a worldwide mission that he's trying to accomplish. And, and as we've been going through this series, when we get back into First uh, Thessalonians today, we're actually wrapping up that chapter. That's something we've been talking about as a healthy church, is that you understand that a church is not existing for itself, that the people aren't existing in the church to fulfill themselves, but the church has a responsibility. And even the verse that was uh, spoken on by Ray there, coming out of Matthew 25, that whole portion, it's the second longest portion of Jesus, uh, of his, his direct words, apart from the Sermon on the Mount. And that whole portion of Scripture is talking about his return, like we've been talking about the last two weeks and the emphasis is, what is the church doing while he's away? And that's, that's just it, is we need to be faithful to what God has called us to do. So when you're part of the church, you, you begin to realize that, that it's so much bigger than yourself as an individual, and it's so much bigger than your local church uh, as, as a body, but you become a part of this great worldwide network and this universal body of Christ in which uh, he's calling Christians to go and to make disciples. And so we support those around the world who are doing that. And you know who the missionaries to Maple Plain, Minnesota are? Us, right? Us. And so that's the local mission that we have as well. And so we all have this missional effort. And so uh, as I, I love that, uh, I love the stories of what's happening around the world. And I always wonder, like, why do those things have to happen around the world? Right? Why, why can't they happen here as well? And that's the, the, the joy and the duty that we're called to as well as Christians in, in being missional. So I do encourage you to echo with uh, Dean's sentiments that prayer is one of the most important things we can do. Right? And, and one of the easy ways to do that is to pick up that missionary uh, prayer book that's available in the foyer or just reach out and get filled in. Anyone can receive the, uh, the regular updates from the missionaries through the email. So just send an send a email to info at mpcommunitychurch.org. I'll be in on that. And you're going to get so many things, it's going to be hard to keep up with it in prayer. But it's always that way of, of being in the know of what's happening. So I encourage you, encourage you to do that. But I want to get into the message today because uh, we're getting into uh, the, the closing of the chapter where there is just a lot going on here. And we've been going through this, this series of, of a hopeful and a healthy church and all of the ins and the outs uh, of, of church life. And, and we get to kind of an interesting uh, part when, when Paul closes this letter. It's kind of like that moment when um, I, I think about it the first time we left our son Mason overnight with someone. It was Mandy's parents. And he was about a year old. And we we're kind of nerve-wracked about it. But it's always like a Okay, here's how he likes his bottle. This is his favorite blanket. This is his nap schedule. This is, and you're going over all of these things, and it's 20 minutes straight. You're telling all of the things they need to know, and, and even little things like, you know, he likes it when you brush him right here. And, and so it's like all these things, and it's like, okay, we get it. Uh, or maybe you've had that experience where you're dropping off your kid at, at church camp for the first time. They're a teenager, and it's like, Okay, remember to brush your teeth and change your socks and listen to your leaders and make good friends and make good choices. And it's like, yeah, I get it. Uh, this is kind of like that, that moment with Paul where he's, uh, he doesn't know that he's going to be writing Second Thessalonians yet. The Holy Spirit knows that. But it's kind of like, here's everything you need to know. And we see all of these, these lists of things kind of in short staccatos, these commands. And, and this morning is kind of going to be like drinking through a fire hose as we really digest all of this. 
But I've broken it down uh, really to five keys for a healthy church as we read all of this. And we're going to talk about five overarching uh, examples of what we can be doing, commands for a church to stay healthy as we close out this, uh, this first letter of Thessalonians this morning. So if you're not already open there, open up to 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5, and we're going to read verses 12 through the end, verse 28. Uh, but before we do that, let's just take a moment to be, to be praying with one another. So God, we, we do thank you for this series and how it's been so heavy on application for us. There's so many things we could pull away. So God, I pray as we read this today that you would really be speaking to us. And I mean, there's so many things, such a wide, uh, wide spectrum of things we're going to be reading. But just speak to us with your Holy Spirit. As we're all members of, of your universal church, we desire to be a healthy church. And so I pray that we can put these things into practice. And so I pray for everyone here. Uh, we pray for those uh, this morning who may be distracted or divided for, for any reason, uh, and, and even those uh, who are now suffering uh, some kind of, of grief or sorrow, and, and, and maybe that could be keeping them. Uh, so I, I just pray for them right now, those who have lost loved ones recently. I know there's many in our, our congregation, uh, like Peg and, and the, the funeral yesterday, or, or Dwight and the loss of his mom. But God, I just pray for anyone right now uh, that you would just comfort them, that you guide all of us now to be hearing this uh, through your Holy Spirit. And God, I just pray uh, now this be blessed in your name. Amen. Amen. Right, starting in verse 12, chapter 5. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So the, the letter comes to a close there, and I, I think you maybe see what I was talking about was just kind of the rapid fire of, of commands and ideas. And he ends this idea with greet each other with a holy kiss. And this has been a sermon all about application. So how do we apply this? I want you to lean to your left right now. I'm just, ki- I'm just kidding, just kidding. In contemporary speak, that just means be kind and be warm to each other, right? But as we look through this and, and look, like, looking this at, at this in five distinct areas of application, the five keys to a healthy church, the first one he starts with is, is a pretty important one, that there needs to be respect of church leadership. And honestly, this is one of those awkward things to kind of talk about, Right? As a church leader, I, I'm not saying you all need to respect me, and, and, and now I, I expect you guys to treat me above and beyond anyone else. Uh, but it is one of these biblical ideas that in the church, 
there is leadership. And just like every other part of life, without strong and good leadership and a respect of that leadership, things can fall apart, whether it's in the family, whether it's in businesses, organizations, uh, local, state, country levels, and, and certainly in the church. Uh, God designed the church to have leadership. Before we get into verse 12 specifically, just some really big overarching ideas about church leadership that we read in the, in the Bible. And, and first is the idea that Christ himself is the leader of the church. Okay, we don't lead the church. Uh, no person or group or denomination leads any church. Jesus is the leader of the church and is known as the true shepherd, the great overwatcher. It's actually Jesus who entrusts leaders to take care of the church. Now, the second part is that not everyone is a leader. Okay, in, in the parts of the Bible that talk about how the body works, uh, there, there's spiritual gifts and people are gifted in different ways. Not everyone is gifted with everything. Some people are gifted more than others. Uh, both, uh, in both 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, leadership is listed or administration is listed as one of those gifts. So some people are equipped with leadership and some people aren't. Uh, the church was designed around this idea of leadership that we talked about. And so in all of the areas of the scriptures, in Acts, and Titus, and in, in 1 Timothy, whenever new churches were being created, one of the first orders of businesses was to equip elders, to appoint elders to oversee the churches. And there's never uh, any one single leader of the church. What we call this is a plurality of leadership. So it's not one pastor or, or one person that leads a church, but there's a group, one group that leads the church. And, and finally, the most important thing with church leadership is that nobody should be leading in a sense of personal gain. Whatever that might be, that, that leadership really is uh, an area of service and burden. It often comes at a great personal expense to be a leader of the church. And that's why we would read in 1 Timothy 5 that Elders who direct the affairs of the church are well worthy of double honor because they give double burden. So as we look at uh, verse 12 here, it's that, that same concept that's consistent with the rest of the Bible is acknowledge those who work hard, who care for you, or, or other translations would say who watch over you and who admonish you. And this tells us three uh, overarching parts of leadership. And first is that leaders in the church work hard. And this literally means to exert energy and care to the point of weariness and total fatigue. That means that leaders of the church should be working in a way in which they're giving everything. And that's true for any good leader, that they're doing way more than you realize. As they work hard among, or sorry, as they are ones who care for you or watch over you, this shows the kind of leadership that you have in church leadership. And if we uh, look at this now compared to 1 Peter 5, it says that elders uh, among the church should shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, and not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And this, is, this shows the, the ways that leaders should lead in the church that it's not something they do simply because nobody else would do it, not because they feel like they have to do it, but because they love to do it. They do it willingly as a response of, of God's calling. That they won't be doing it for themselves for any reason, whether it's the personal gain of power or ego or control, but it's out of service and care and being a good example to those they're leading. 
We also see that leaders are ones who would correct you or admonish you. And this is one of the thankless parts of leadership, right? It's the hard conversations and, and one of the, the things that, that can often create conflict, but that's the leader's job is to correct or admonish. And so oftentimes church leaders, elders, pastors are called shepherds. Uh, why do shepherds carry a crook? Why do they carry their staff? Well, one is to, to, to uh, fend off uh, threats. It's, it's to kind of guide sheep along who are lost, but it's also to kind of whack sheep once in a while when they get out of line, right? And so that's, part of the one of the, that's one of the parts of leadership is keeping people accountable to the Word of God. We're going to talk about that more later. But the idea that we see from this first key is that, that we have to hold leaders in, in high regard and, and love them that you appreciate them, that you see what's going on, and, and that you don't become divisive, but you live in peace with one another, and there's a healthy respect for them. So if you've been here throughout the series, I always give kind of a light bulb moment. This is the part, if you haven't been paying attention, pay attention to these things. It's what I want you to walk away with, is that a church is at its healthiest when leaders love, serve, and care for their people, and the people love, trust, and respect their leaders. And I say this in the understanding that there will be no human church leader that's ever perfect, right? That there's going to be mistakes, there's going to be misunderstandings. They themselves will need to be corrected as well. So it doesn't mean that they're untouchable, but if they're a good leader who's doing it out of love and service and care for the people, that there's an incredible amount of burden that's been placed on their life from Jesus himself to respond to that calling. And so the people are to come under them and, and, and really love them and trust them and respect them, while everyone still continues to work together in partnership. And there's so many horror stories in the church where this doesn't happen, where there's this growing uh, distrust and this division. And, and I heard about a story not long ago where, where undercover police officers had to be in the church business meeting because there's death threats against the pastor. And so there's this, this, this hardship that really boils up because they're not taking into account these scriptural principles. And at times, people may be appointed leader who shouldn't be a leader. But I think whenever you're at a point where you're not able to live this out, you have to ask yourself one of two questions. Is that leader not right for our church? Okay, because that is true at times. Or if I can't respect the church leadership, am I not right for this church? Is that leader not right, or am I not right? Because if you're not able to live this out, it only leads to problems down the road. And the Bible is full of examples of, of divisions and factions and all of these things that can really uh, make a church unhealthy. This is something we have to understand. And Hebrews 13, uh, 17 says it very well. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as ones who must give account. That means they have a responsibility to you, but ultimately they have a responsibility to Jesus and say, this is why I led the way I did. They have a lot of burden in their life. And so do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, because that would be of no benefit to you. It's no benefit to you. It's no benefit to the leader. It's no benefit to the church. So respect the church leadership. Find a way that they can love, serve, and care for you, that you can love, trust, and respect them. We go beyond that now to verses 14 and 15, which really talks about how we work with one another, right, as a community. And we need to build this strong community. Now, the old saying goes, the church would be really easy if it weren't for the people, right? 
And people are hard, people have pasts, people have faults. But the reality is, without all those broken people, there would be no church. We all come as these flawed individuals, as a part of a collective whole. We all come with these brokenness and, and baggage and this baggage that we carry. But one of my favorite quotes uh, of church ministry is this, especially when you think of yourself uh, in the context of the community, that we're all sheep, right? And where there's sheep, there's poop. Okay? There's hard stuff and stinky stuff we have to work through. But now we see this, this part of how we work with one another. And the first command here, and this is now moving from asking people to urging people, is that you have to warn those who are idle and disruptive. And idle here means someone who's basically doing nothing. Disruptive is someone who's doing all of the wrong things. Idle could be someone with no passion, no action, just the kind of the, you know, the one who sits and watches everyone and, and maybe critiques them. Disruptive is the one who is, is actively seeking divisions, uh, disunity through, through gossip and slander. It's really any ungodly word or action that threatens unity and breeds divisiveness in the church. That's someone who is disruptive. And when I read, uh, when I prepare for the, the sermons, I like to read a lot of different commentaries. And, and one I always try to hold on to is, is a, a commentator who is actively serving as a pastor who has a long time as a pastor. Because they, they're really ones who, who have seen this in real life. Uh, Mark Howell is the name of one of them that I read. He's a pastor at a large church in Florida. And talking about this specifically, he gives a lot of examples in his time as a pastor of what idle and disruptive can mean. So I'm going to read this for you. And if I were a member of his church, I'd be really like, ooh. But idle and disruptive people can take on many forms in the church, from the gifted pew-sitter who never gets involved to the opinionated busybody that criticizes everything. It may be those who threaten to withhold their tithes when they get upset to those who seek to undermine the authority and decisions of leaders by stirring dissension and stirring the pot through back-channel talk. It could be those who refuse to use their spiritual gifts by critiquing and complaining about all those who do. All these types of people are idle and disruptive to the Church of Christ. They have the potential to undermine God's work, divide God's people, and limit the Church's outreach. And therefore, they must be warned and dealt with quickly. Again, I'm really glad I'm not a member of that church. But you see, this can be played out in so many different ways. And, and this isn't just for church leaders. This is for everyone. If you're seeing something that's idle or disruptive, we're urged to warn them and say, you're not just hurting yourself, you're hurting the church. And we need to work together on this. We can't just turn a blind eye to these problems. You really need to confront them. And that's the difficult thing to do as believers holding each other accountable. We also need to encourage the disheartened. And this can be those who are really timid or kind of mild-mannered. And, and these are people who are not really actively trying to cause a division in the church. It's, it's typically people who are disheartened through a lack of confidence or some kind of hurt. They're kind of the people on the fringe, right, who just don't seem to want to engage. You need to really encourage them and bring them into the fold. Help the weak. Now, this could mean physically weak, but it probably means spiritually weak, like new believers or people who have been in the church for a long time but still quite aren't grasping these things. You need to help them, which is to hold firmly to or, or even carry them. 
And this means that you're partnering with those who are weak in the faith. That those who are strong in the faith need to carry those who are weak in the faith. And this speaks kind of a support, as a, of a support system in the church. And the most difficult of all of this is that we need to be patient with all of these people. Not speaking to you, all of you who have now through this been saying, I know who that person is and that person is and that person is, right? Be patient with them now. Be patient with the hard people. And our gut instinct is often to say, just get out of the way or just leave if you're not getting it. But we have to do everything we can to build a strong community and stick with people. The application I want you to understand through this is that even the healthiest of churches consist of imperfect people. These imperfect people have all kinds of past hurts, current struggles, and future fears. And we are going to have really hard things to work through with one another. Conflicts. And and, and what we see in verse 15 is that we need to refuse to retaliate to those hurts. Now there's a a world out there who uh, largely rejects Christianity, but I believe that most Christians probably are going to experience the greatest amount of hurt from within the church. We have a lot of tough things to walk through, whether it's someone who's hurt you on purpose or an accident. You have to be patient with them and refuse to retaliate, that you don't pay back wrong with wrong, but always just strive to do what's in the best interest of everyone around you. This is an incredibly difficult thing to live up to as a Christian, but I believe it is a key to a healthy church. You will inevitably be hurt. You can't let that resentment and that bitterness live inside of you. You have to seek to reconcile and repair relationships and do everything you can to live in peace. Now the third key, we move uh, now from our relationships with one another to our, our personal relationships with God. We need spiritually strong individuals in the church. And here's where we really get into the portion where it's just kind of those really quick, uh, you know, one, one verse is two words here. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. All right. These are the things that on their surface are pretty much impossible for the believer as you, as you think about it. And so to rejoice always seems kind of difficult because like if, you, if you think of this literally, it's like, like a rejoice even when things are really hard, even when I have these uh, moments that turn my life upside down. How do I rejoice, rejoice through all these hurts and hardships? Well, I think what we see here is that rejoicing or having joy as a Christian goes well beyond your circumstances. It's not something you work on, joy. It's something that you're given. You're given joy as a gift from the Holy Spirit. It's because you see the world through this eternal perspective that you've been given such a richness in your salvation with Jesus that no matter what you're going through now, is nothing compared to what you're going to have for eternity. Joy is a gift. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit that we can receive, and we have the choice to live in joy or not. We can live without joy, but that becomes your choice. And joy is not being oblivious to all circumstances in life, but it's not being governed by them either. Maintain this perspective that God is at work and he's doing something that you can't do. And that's what it very easily then leads into praying continually. This is another one. How, how is this possible? How can you pray 24-7? I was just saying pray in your sleep. 
You know, pray uh, while you're eating. Is that like between bites? Or how does this work? Well, this is, you know, this is one of those areas, prayer, where we often misunderstand uh, prayer by itself, and, and therefore you can misunderstand what this, what this verse means. But without ceasing or continually has some really interesting Greek connotations. All right? This continually means like an attacking army or an incessant hacking cough. We're supposed to pray like an incessant hacking cough. What does that mean? What we understand is that this, this gives us this, this uh, connotation of, of continuous, with uh, this relentless pursuit like an attacking army. But it's also something that's kind of automatic or involuntary. That when you have any situation in life, your natural response is going to be to bring it to prayer. Just like when you have to cough, you don't tell yourself, okay, I'm going to cough now. It just happens. And this is the way we should be seeing prayer, knowing that God wants to hear from you in all things, that, that we don't have to schedule times with prayer for God, but we have this all-access ticket uh, to the throne of God in prayer through Jesus Christ. There's no barriers. And when you pray, it's essentially giving Him control over the things in your life. We understand that prayer isn't just getting things from God. Okay, but it's understanding the will of God. It becomes more relational than transactional. And so what this is telling us is that we should always be praying to understand the will of God, to bring all things to him, big and small, and to do it automatically and relentlessly. And the last part of this is probably the most difficult to understand. Give thanks in all circumstances. Really? I'm supposed to be thankful that my car got stolen or my arm got broken? Well, you have to read this carefully. It's not being thankful for all circumstances, being thankful in all circumstances. And this is really your attitude as a believer. It's, it's this, this grateful heart that in all things you can see the big picture that, that we're not focused on what we don't have, but we understand what we've been given. You, you recognize the blessings in your life. And thankfulness does not come naturally. If you're telling yourself, I'll just be more thankful when I make more money or have the bigger house or whatever it is, it's not true. You're lying to yourself. If you can't be thankful now in what you have, you won't be thankful then when you get what you think you need. Thankfulness is a discipline, and you should be thankful in all circumstances. And then these three impossible commands are wrapped up with this one idea. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This is God's will for everyone who is a believer. And I think we see something really important here. When you're, you're thinking about God's will in your life, you usually relate it to like specific decisions. Should I take the job? Should, should I get married to this person? Whatever it might be. I think God's will for your life starts with something much more focused than that. It's the condition of your heart and your mind. Before you even make those decisions, are you joyful? Are you prayerful? Are you thankful? That's God's general will for all believers. And that's the, the point here, is that God's will for your life has more to do with your perspective, your mindset, and your attitude than any specific decision you could make in this life. And I do think God can reveal his will, to, his will to us in very specific ways. But if you are joyful, prayerful, and thankful, this becomes this identifying mark that you are his child that you are a believer in Jesus. This is where the will of God starts in your life, and it's what makes you a spiritually strong individual. 
The next portion we see, again, really quick ideas are wrapped up in this idea that you're, there's a commitment to God's word. The church needs to be founded and established and maintained on the word of God. And this is very important because this has to do with a, what we'd call spiritual discernment. Now, one of the greatest threats to the church, and this is spelled all throughout the New Testament, and, and uh, we see it even today, one of the greatest threats to the church is, is false teaching, false prophecy. These, these ideas that come from the world, that, that come into the church, and, and on the surface they might seem very good, they might seem very reasonable, they might seem humanitarian, but there is some dissonance with the Word of God. And it's a very slippery slope that churches uh, can, can fall into. It's been that, case, that way ever since the case of Jesus, who, who warned about these false prophets and these false teachers, who come in like a wolf in sheep's clothing, and they seek only to destroy and devour. Things can look really good and correct, but you have to, as a church, be rooted in the Word of God to know if it's true or not. And that's what we're reading in this section here. First is that you don't quench the Spirit. I mean, what this means is don't stifle the Spirit. Don't put out the Spirit's fire. So the Holy Spirit still works. I think the Holy Spirit can still lead us towards things. And, and this might be an example to apply it to you. Like, you feel this urging to go talk to your neighbor about Jesus. It could be the Holy Spirit doing that, and you might say, no, I don't want to bother them, or I just don't have time today, or what if they think I'm weird? Like, that would be an example of quenching or stifling the Spirit. It's any kind of thought or action that will uh, take you away from the Spirit's prompting. So the Holy Spirit does work. And then we get into the idea of prophecies, which we could talk a lot about that today, what prophecy means. Is there still prophecy today since we have the Bible? There's a range of opinions on that. But this isn't so much about uh, prophecy itself, but what to do with prophecy, no matter where you're at on this, on this, uh, and this idea of, of the role of prophecy. Don't immediately dispel it, but you have to test it and figure out what is good and what is right. And if it's prophecy that's having to do with foretelling or something in the future, it's, it's kind of easy. If someone says, this is going to happen on January 15th, I'm a prophet of God, and, and he told me this will happen, and then it doesn't happen. It's a false prophet. Anyone who claims to be a prophet of God will never be wrong. But the second, more foolproof test is, is to, to compare what they're saying against the Word of God, being accountable and committed to His Word. This idea that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That's 2 Timothy 3.16. And he's giving that verse in a portion of that, that book that's talking about guarding against false teachers. And so we're to hold on to what is good and true and reject every kind of evil, every kind of false teaching. Everything you hear, read, and believe should be tested against Scripture. It's a key to a healthy Christian and a healthy church. And so the application here is that that a moment a church abandons or compromises God's Word, it is no longer His church. I'm going to say it again, this is important. The moment that a church abandons or compromises God's Word, it is no longer His church. It just becomes a human organization. For the church and for the believer, everything should be viewed through the lens of Scripture. 
making big decisions, accepting or denying teaching, setting off in any direction, all of it should boil down to this one big question. What does the Bible say about this? As we talked about before, there's this slippery slope that you see churches kind of fall into. They still are today, where, where they hear this idea that sounds good, and they hold on to it, and they start teaching it. And that's not the problem at that point. The problem is when they notice some dissonance with Scripture. They have the ability at that point to correct themselves. But now they have a choice of this outside idea is wrong, or this Scripture is wrong. So more often than not, when they go in the wrong direction, they'll say, you know what, I don't like this verse. I'm not going to accept this verse, or I'm going to do some theological gymnastics to make this verse fit this idea. And now that starts to open up the door, this crack of undermining the authority of Scripture. And then before you know it, years or a decade or two, the church is standing on nothing. God won't bless a church that abandons or compromises his word. And that's why our church, why it's something I'm so, I want you to know so clearly that for as long as I'm here, we will always stand on God's word as authority. And our church will only be as strong, any church will only be as strong as the commitment to preach, teach, and obey Scripture. We must have a commitment to God's word as a church. And the, the last key that we're going through today, verses in 23 and 24, is trusting God to do his work. And this is a really important one to end on because we've talked a lot about what we can do as believers to be a strong church. The reality is we can only do about that much. And all of the really important stuff that needs to be done in the church is not done by us, it's done by God. And the word that's really used here is sanctification. We talked about that a number of weeks back when Pastor Chris was speaking through uh, chapter 4, that there's this sanctification, this work of God that needs to be done in our lives to make us effective or to live lives that are pleasing to him. And sanctification is really us being made more and more like Jesus through his work in us. And you really consider what, what actually happens in the role of sanctification. The first is that we're sanctified through and through. What this means is that we are completely changed. And there's so many stories of these, these people coming to Jesus in, in this desperate situation, this broken life of this, these really sinful and somewhat evil, always these, these evil lives that are just completely transformed when they're a Christian. It's not because they said, now that I'm a Christian, I'm going to try really hard, right? It's because Jesus does this miracle in them, like he does in all of us, that we were dead, that we're now dead to our sin and alive in Christ, that we're made into these new creations, that our spirit, our soul, and our body can be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. That's not our work. That's his we can reform our behavior, we can change our appearance, and ultimately it might make us feel a, be a little better or look a little bit better, but it's, it's momentary. The only lasting and eternal change that can be done in us is the power of Christ sanctifying us through his Holy Spirit. It changes every part of who we are. We all need to recognize God's great work in us. And these are the things we cannot do ourselves. That's what makes you a healthy church. That's that last point, is that the sanctifying work that God does in us is 
far more important than the work we can do for God. Even our best efforts, our most honest efforts, the Bible tells us, is like filthy rags before the Lord. Okay? The greatest work that's done in the church is done through the power of God. And this means we have no pride in this. This is not our church. We did not build this with our own hands. Healthy churches understand that God is working through a church in the way we cannot. And that he won't give up on us. He'll keep working on this. He who calls us is faithful, and he will do it. We're all works in progress as individuals. But the church itself and the power around the world is God's work through us. A healthy church knows that and lives that. So as we wrap up today, uh, really thinking about what we're hearing, I'm just going to repeat these points, just so we know. Again, this is like drinking out of a fire hose today. I get it. There's a lot. But the first is we do need to respect leaders of the church, knowing that Christ has appointed them, that he has given them the burden to care for and serve those in the church, that we come now with this partnership, this unity of mission as we work together, that being a strong community means sticking with each other, helping each other, guiding each other, but really sticking with each other in in patience and, and working toward peace that we need to be healthy individuals living in God's will. And this has more to do with your heart and your mind than these specific decisions, right? Be joyful, be prayerful, be thankful. Stay committed to his word. You have to make decisions through the lens of what you read here. And then ultimately, and most importantly, trust in God's work. He is going to do all of the most important things, the things we can't do. And nobody can do this work but him. So apart from God... Apart from Jesus being the center, the head of the church, we would all fail. Trust in him to do his work. Let's pray as we close. So God, I thank you for just the the encouragement that I I get out of these verses and knowing ultimately we're never going to be perfect at this. And, And there is no such thing as a perfect church, but there is a perfect Lord. And so, God, I pray that as we think about these, these things, how we can be healthier, that we be committed to you and your work, uh, Lord, and that we would uh, just know that you are at the center of all of the great and the wonderful things that are happening in this church. So may we just be inspired uh, by, by you. And uh, Lord, may we be joyful and prayerful and thankful in all things as you've called us to do. But as we continue in this series, God, we know that there's so much of this happening, uh, so much with urgency that you could return at any time and that we have things to do while you're here. So help us just to keep clicking on all cylinders to be your healthy church for your glory. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.